Hi, Nancy. Hey. Have you ever done a, the time capsule thing? Oh, yeah, like in third grade or oh, something. You did. I think we did. Yeah. You don't remember what you put in? Of course not. I mean, I probably put in like, you know, garbage pail kids. Remember those? <laughs> No, because I'm not as old as you are. But um, if, <laughs> if you could, uh, if you could do it now, like today, right this very second, create a time capsule. What's the thing that you would put in there? Recordings of this podcast, of course. Uh <laughs> Oh my gosh, I don't. In all seriousness, what? I was just thinking. I was like, that's not like. Isn't Carl Sagan on Voyager? Like, is no. It? I mean, there's the 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 golden record. It's not yeah. quite the same. Yeah. No. 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 It's like the gold. <laughs> my voice carried through the generations. <laughs> through the cosmos. <laughs> what would, in all seriousness? Well, I was thinking, like, of course, I mean, the first thing that came to my mind was like a smartphone. But then, but then I was like, but if they don't have the same like cellular networks and everything, they won't even be able to turn it on. And like an Because I feel like battery. that's such a big part of our society right now. Is it part of your life? Everyone's life, no. I feel like you put like a book in there. Oh, like a personal time capsule? Or are you talking about like a time capsule for all of humanity? I was thinking about more broad here oh. than Nancy Bumpy's time capsule. I was thinking like, what would you represent to like all of humanity? Oh, okay. I, I was thinking more personal. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. For me, it would probably be like, exactly, like some books. <laughs> or like, I don't know. What would yours be? Um... I would probably put in um, something vain, probably probably like not necessarily the, this voice. No one, no one wants this voice in, in perpetuity. But like, I don't know your maybe. hair. I your was- hair. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the American Geophysical Union's podcast about the scientists and the methods behind the science. These are the stories you won't read in the manuscript or hear in a lecture. I'm Shane Hanlon. And I'm Nancy Bompey. And this is Third Pod from the Sun, Centennial Edition. All right. So as always, there is a method behind the madness. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't asking you about time capsules because I was just genuinely interested in what you put in one. <laughs> <laughs> you really could care less. I mean, it's, it's interesting, but no. Today uh, we're talking. We're talking about um, ice ages, but specifically like how we know what happened in ice ages. Mm. And so, like, I feel like there are things put down, kind of like time capsules, that tell us what happened in the past and how it might influence the future. Anyways, so for that, um, we had our producer, Liza Lester. Uh, hi, Liza. Hi, guys. Uh, who can tell us more about what exactly we're talking about today? So these time capsules we're talking about are made of mud. And they're these long tubes of mud that tell us about the history of our climate. Today's guest is Jessica Tierney. She's a paleoclimatologist at the University of Arizona. She's kind of like a historian of mud. That's so cool. That That's is very awesome cool. Title. I know. I love that. Historian of mud. And so I guess I can go back. Like you were kind of telling us they can go back way back and see like when it was much like an ice age, basically. Yeah. I can go all the way back the, that many years to find these, you know, when Earth was much different than it is today. Yeah, potentially even way farther. But today we are talking, we're talking to her about the ice age because we're talking about the period of time when humans were around. During the ice age. During the ice age. I thought we weren't around during ice ages. We were. Oh. Nor are we out of one. <laughs> we are currently in an... We're in an ice age now. That's right. Oh. Wow. My mind is being blown. <laughs> Even though it's not what we might think of from movies or whatever. That's right. I think yeah. we think of the times when the the big ice sheets cover big parts of the earth or the alpine areas. Gla- the glaciers really grow. And that happens during an ice age. So this one started about 2.6 million years ago. And it's not just one long period of cold, though. It kind of 
oscillates between these big glacial sheets and times that are balmier, like right now. Hmm. Exciting. Very exciting. You know, we hung out in Africa for a while, but this our species didn't leave Africa until maybe 60,000 years ago or so, like, or something like that time. So there's all this question about why we left when we did, if humans left in different waves, like there was an early wave or a later wave. Because shortly after our species left the continent of Africa, we see that it rapidly colonizes everywhere, right? So we find Homo sapiens in Eurasia, and then shortly after in Australia, and eventually the Americas. So it's a pretty fast movement. But I think a question for a long time has been whether climate change could have been a reason for why humans left when they did. So we know when they left um, from sort of a myriad of evidence, both genetic evidence, like studies that look at mitochondrial DNA patterns and try and date, based on mutations, date when people actually moved out of Africa. So there's some really interesting work. It's not my expertise, obviously. Uh, My expertise is the climate story. I am a paleoclimatologist, which means I study the past climate change. And we do that by actually isolating chemical signatures out of old sediment cores, as well as sometimes rocks, um, depending on the time period that we're investigating. We use organic geochemical techniques to isolate uh, what we call biomarkers. And they're actually the, the lipid or the fat remnants of living things that are still preserved in sediments and rocks for millions of years. And it turns out that these molecular fossils These fossil fats can tell us all sorts of things about the climate in the past, how warm or cold it was, how wet or dry it was. So how can you tell how warm or cold it was from the fats? What does it tell you? Yeah, so it turns out that a lot of algae, they actually change the structure of their cell membrane in response to the temperature of the water that they're growing in. And the analogy that I usually give is butter and oil. So these are both fats. One is solid at room temperature, the other is liquid. And that is simply because the the oil is an unsaturated fat. So it has those double bonds in it that actually you know, change the melting point. And it's the same thing for an, for a little bug who's creating their cell membrane. Actually, when the water is cold, they add fats with more unsaturations. And then when it's warm, they want to be more like butter. So there's less saturations in their cell membrane fats. And these fats are preserved. So we can actually measure the ratio of the saturated to the unsaturated fat. And that's a paleothermometer. So how far back in time, what kind of span of time are we talking about when you look back in these cores? Like, what is the range of the past that you can look at this way? Well, you can sometimes find fossil biomarkers going back even as far as a billion years, um, although that's very difficult work. In my laboratory, we mostly focus on the... um, the Mesozoic to Cenozoic time span. The oldest stuff that we're doing is in the Cretaceous, the time of the dinosaurs. And, but we also do very, very young work like the last few thousand years. So, so that tends to be within the span of my lab. That's a lot. So everyone has a sort of different thing that they're looking at. But most of the time we're focusing on that more re- recent geologic history. Well, we work in 
mostly cores that are taken from the bottom of the ocean. And we've worked all over, so we talked a little bit about the work off of Africa and how we use these deep cores to look at climate changes for the out-of-Africa migration. So some of those cores come from the Gulf of Aden, for example. They were generally taken a long time ago. One of the cores that we used for that study was taken in 1965. So sort of a vintage, vintage core. Uh, it was taken during a time when the U.S. Navy, naval resources allowed us to have these vessels just wandering around and taking cores everywhere. So we rely on these libraries of cores that are maintained in the United States and in other countries as well, where you can kind of go through, just like you would go through a book library, but it's a mud library, and find if there's a, if there's a core in a spot that you're interested in looking at. Nancy, I, I do. I know you love libraries. I do. I volunteer at the library. <laughs> Would you? Do you want a mud library? Is that not quite the library? Mm, no? I don't know. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> uh, well, okay. So, Liza, where are these cores uh, actually coming from? Well, sometimes they can come from the bottom of lakes, but most of them are coming from the ocean floor. So you kind of need like a big boat to go out on the ocean and do this. You need a big drill and you need capacity on your boat that you can have meters and meters of these cores that you can then get put somewhere. Um, so that that's kind of a hurdle. Mm -hmm. um, and depending on how far back you want to go, I mean, the Cretaceous, that's 100 million years ago. We don't have to go quite back that far, but one of the problems she ran into is that the place where she want, was interested in the Gulf of Aden was there's a lot of political turmoil in that area. Oh. Right? There's pirates because those people are in pretty desperate situation often. And so mm -hmm. that means you know, going there to do these drills isn't really a priority right now. On the flip side of that, I wonder what like if you get bored, if a coring drilling ship gets boarded <laughs> and they find just like meters and meters of what like mud cores. Yeah. Like what? I wonder what the thought process there is. Like what is happening here? How do you explain this to people? Right. But probably just best just to avoid it. That's usually the idea. Yeah. So having these old libraries kind of helps with that. Ah. Mm. We had, you know, for a long time been working on these sediment cores from the Gulf of Aden, which is the body of water just north of Somalia and south of Saudi Arabia, close to the Red Sea. And we realized it was a good spot to look at this question because Humans, when they left Africa, they either had to go up north through Egypt and cross over Sinai, or perhaps they took a southern route um, right at the strait that separates the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden. Um, maybe they could have done that by island hopping in a time of lowered sea level. So, so, so it was close to the migration pass, I guess. So there were geographical barriers to them leaving the continent of Africa? Well, not if they went up north okay. to, the, to the Sinai Peninsula. That, that would have been overland. But the strait that's at the bottom of the Red Sea, of course, is, is full of water today. However, in the last glacial period, sea level was much lower at its max 120 meters lower. And so that strait was mostly restricted. And in that situation, it's possible that people could have gotten across. Uh, we don't know which way they went, but either way, we were able to look at, use our sort of our biomarker tools, those fossil fats, and reconstruct climate, in particular how rainfall has changed through that time. And so we were able to do that with some of our sediment cores from, from the Gulf of Aden and then look at that question. What we found was that actually the climate was very dry. 
uh, during the main migration or what we think is the timing of the main migration of humans out of Africa. That dry time came just after a time that was much wetter. So I'm not an anthropologist and <laughs> I'm not sure that everyone would agree with our interpretation. And in the past, people figured that our species left during a wet time because that would transform the desert into a greener place and allow people to um, migrate northwards and perhaps into the Levant, uh, Saudi Arabia and onwards because there would be resources. But on the other hand, you know, drought is also what we call a push mechanism, a reason for people to move. So, so our idea was that the climate was wet and then it rapidly became dry and unfavorable, and that might have been a reason for people to explore beyond and move into Eurasia. So speculation, because we can never really know uh, what kind of decision-making our ancestors made. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a lot of these cores don't look particularly exciting. You pull them out, and it's just this tube of mud. You know? <laughs> and so I think the reason we can get excited about it is that we know that there's a lot of stuff in there that we can't see. But often they are not particularly alluring to look at. They kind of remind me of when I was in high school and I took uh, pottery classes and learned how to make plates. And, and there's this sort of smell in a studio, pottery studio, this sort of earthy um, smell of the mud, the different kinds of muds that you might use to make pottery. Um, and I always, th these core labs smell similar, you know, the sort of musty, earthy mud smell. In fact, uh, deep sea marine mud makes for wonderful pottery. People have actually used cast offs for that uh, because it's very fine grained. But anyway, it reminds me of that. It reminds me of being in a pottery studio. So I like the smell because it's sort of homey. Okay, I just have to apologize to anyone. We, are, we just took a quick cake break. Of which I discovered that I'm slightly allergic to chocolate, I think. Yeah, there's cake next door in our office, so of course we had to go get some. It was uh, a glacier cake. Oh, it was? It was actually themed. Yeah. It was like ro a rock? A glacier? I don't know what it was, but it looked like Earth science somehow. It was lovely. Yeah. Anyways, uh, so talking about leaving places, um, would like what would you all do in a situation? Would you leave or have you like left somewhere based on the climate? I've never left, but I've moved to this place in D.C. <laughs> that does not have the best climate from a place with a lovely climate, I might add. I lived in the mountains of North Carolina where uh, it's like literally the best climate ever. Yeah. And to this I mean, hot. Yeah. It's humid. not dry either. It's, no, it's, hot and humid. Yeah, it's terrible. I moved. I came from Memphis, Tennessee. Oh, that's even worse. Which which it is. I'm from PA originally. And I was like, oh, moving. I'm moving back up north ish it's like things would be so much better it'll be so great and i get here and no it's not better it's just as humid and slightly less hot i love dc but i do not like this climate and we get like a full-on winter too and we do get a full-on winter but like not enough of a, a we could literally talk about this for days right i know yeah yeah <laughs> but this is this is so fascinating though about how it could change you know how what people make decisions based on. i mean now in modern days there's lots of other factors right sure. but um, that comes into play oh yeah definitely yeah About 120,000 years ago, when humans were still in Africa, it was what we call the last interglacial time. So the time, a time that's free of the large ice sheets that are typical of an ice age. And what happened in Africa during that time is it's what we call a green Sahara. So it's a time when the Sahara is not the Sahara Desert that we know, but 
in fact, covered with grasses and shrubs and host to large and deep lakes. So very, very different world. And these green Saharas happen rhythmically through time. They're paced by changes in the Earth's orbit around the sun, which brings periodically more energy in the summertime and fuels the African monsoon. And so we've done some studies looking at you know, how wet was the Green Sahara? And we found that it was quite wet. So, you know, where it, obviously it rains very little in the Sahara today, but we found that instead during the Green Sahara, the amount of rain was roughly equivalent to what San Francisco maybe received. So more like a, a much more, I mean, it's not a, San Francisco is in a super wet place, of course, but it's not a desert either. So to give you a sense of the scale, it, it really is a huge change in precipitation that's happening during these green Saharas. So before humans left, it was another green Sahara time. And then we moved rapidly into an ice age condition where it was really, really cold and dry. And, that, and then that's the time of the migration, or the main wave of the out of Africa migration. And how often do these green Saharas come? You said they come rhythmically. Yeah, so they're, they come every 20,000 years, more or less, except during the peak of the ice ages when it's really, really cold, they kind of get overridden by the fact that there's large ice sheets in the planet, but otherwise every 20,000 years. And that's linked to this cycle of orbital changes called precession, which is actually the Earth is wobbling a little bit on its orbit. Like as it's rotating, it's sort of wobbling like a top. And the periodicity of that wobble is 20,000 years. So it's a very slow wobble. But it is very much like if you spun a top and it's about to collapse and it starts to kind of rock back and forth. That's the motion that we're talking about when we say precession. And how long do these green Saharas last? Is it just a brief thousand years or a few hundred years? Yeah, so they're lasting about... You know, the peak of it will last something like 5,000 years. So, for example, the last Green Sahara was from around 11,000 years to 5,000 years, so about 6,000 years long. And during the early Holocene, that was the last one. We know the most about that one because we do have evidence for, you know, lakes that existed in the Sahara that, that are obviously not there today. So... 11,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago, people were in that area, I would guess. I mean, this is getting into the era of beginning of agriculture, beginning of cities. Do you see evidence of people in the Sahara from when it was green, when it was not the desert we know now? Yes. So people, there were settlements. There's a lot of archaeology that shows that people were definitely inhabiting the green Sahara in, in 10,000 years ago during the early Holocene. Mostly there was a, at that time, people were hunting and gathering, um, but there started to be more interest in domesticating animals. So um, starting in the eastern part of Africa, but spreading over to the west, we see evidence of people beginning to domesticate cattle and then developing more of a pastoralist lifestyle. So sort of herding lifestyle versus actually just hunting wild game. So raising animals. And so there's some beautiful archaeology, paintings depicting, you know, people herding cattle in the desert. 
and things like this. And so that climate change really allowed people to spread out in North Africa, herd cattle and so on. Towards the end of the Green Sahara though, again, the climate deteriorates. And in some places of the Sahara, it might have deteriorated very quickly. So there are, we have evidence of very rapid climate change out of the Green Sahara in some places, as rapid as a few hundred years. Which again, for humans, it's still a generation time. So it seems slow, but it's pretty fast to go from a, a nice wet place to the, the sort of harsh reality of the Sahara of today. And actually what we see at that time is that that is around the time when you start to see the development of cities and civilizations in the Nile River Valley. So you can imagine that when it was wet, everyone was quite happy to be out on their own in their own spot. But when the climate dries out, the only place with water is the Nile. So we actually see in the archeological record um, this sort of concentration of artifacts and people all along the Nile Valley that, that rises 5,000 years ago, really right in line with that climate change. So in this case, you can think of the climate change that need to be near water, concentrated population, and, and led to the rise of, of the pharaonic civilizations. So it's a pretty interesting connection between climate and civilization, I think. It's so interesting because, you know, we think today, I guess, about climate change, and it's usually like displacing people. It's usually a bad thing, I mean, forcing people to move. Yeah, but here we're seeing maybe it could be an opportunity sometimes. Um, yeah, it could, be, it could be a benefit, I guess, or uh, help people. Right, and she talks a little bit about some other civilizations that may have seen benefits hmm. in times of climate change. Yeah, there are a lot of good examples of humans and civilization interacting with climate in different ways. So I think there's been a lot of attention to times of collapse, you know, that maybe a big drought. I think the classic example is, is the ancient Maya, so the peak Mayan civilization, sort of the classical Mayan civilization ends, and it's right around the time of a big drought, you know, in North America. But there are also examples of civilizations benefiting from climate change. And so you could argue that the rise of pharaonic civilization was a benefit. It was certainly a lifestyle change. Another example that I like is the story of Genghis Khan, Genghis Khan as we know him, who uh, established this huge empire in Asia. And it turns out that um, we know from, from history, archeology, span that he expanded his empire very quickly in a matter of decades. And it was always a question, how was he able to do that? And because the empire stretched pretty much, I mean, all the way across, you know, modern day China and other Eurasian countries. Well, it turns out that that time when he expanded, they found from tree rings was a really wet time. It was actually a, this unusually wet time. And so the idea is that because it was, um, that there was a lot more rain during that time, there was a lot more grass in the steppe, um, which allowed uh, the Mongols to raise more horses. And horses were sort of the firepower of, of the cavalry, the expansion. The fact that they were skilled horse, uh, horse civilization was the reason that they were able to conquer other civilizations. So, so again, there's this connection between climate change and resources allowing um, Genghis Khan to expand his empire at the time. So that's another cool example, I think. So it sounds like from what she's found, like 
climate has always been changing. And this is kind of like one of the arguments you hear all the time from people who don't accept the science behind climate change. Like it's always been changing. Like why should we care about it now? Yeah, right. I mean, it does sound like it's always been changing. Mm -hmm. I think she has an answer for that. Yeah. A lot of questions I often get is when was the last time in Earth's history that we have CO2 that's like today, around 400 parts per million. And the answer to that is, uh, you know, two and a half million years ago to the Pliocene. So you can imagine that that's, that sounds like a long time. And that, that was the last time that we actually hit this level. And the climate was much warmer at that time. So this is also a time when, when our ancestors are evolving in Africa as well. So the climate was much warmer. We had reduced Greenland and West Antarctic ice sheets. So the Greenland ice sheet, we, we don't know exactly what it looked like, but it was definitely uh, smaller. And it looks like we lost some ice on West Antarctica as well during this time. Sea level was much higher as a result during the Pliocene. And we're just starting to learn about changes in precipitation in the Pliocene. But we think that there were shifts in the monsoon systems, for example, that happened during this warm time as well. So um, it's sort of interesting because it's, again, it's the same CO2 that doesn't look like what we see today. Obviously, we still have our ice sheets. The reason for that is we haven't, we've been changing CO2 so fast that the climate system hasn't had time to adapt to it. But you can imagine that if we just stopped emitting but stayed at 400 ppm and sort of ran forward into the future, eventually the climate system would adapt and, and warm up and we would reduce the ice sheets. Um, may, maybe it wouldn't be as dramatic as the Pliocene, we're not sure, but, but it does give us an idea of how much the climate can change, even with just a slight rise, what seems like a slight rise in CO2, it makes a pretty big difference. So we're basically an ice age species. So it's, if we evolved during the time of these big, these big periodic ice ages, uh, so, yeah, if it's somewhere between uh, 200 and 150,000 years ago, then you know, Homo sapiens experienced both ice age and interglacial in between the ice age conditions and back again. But we've never lived in a time with CO2 like this. So even in the ice ages, the CO2 basically wiggles between 180 and 280 ppm back and forth. Um, and so the climate warms and cools. But we're at 400 now, right? Which, we again, we haven't hit in over 2 million years. So that's not a climate that our species knows anything about, actually. What can paleoclimatology tell us about our future? Again, we, there's so many questions about what happens as CO2 keeps rising. And we, we can't see the future, so of course we have to rely on Climate model simulations, our best understanding of climate physics to tell us what might happen. But even then, it's, um, we don't always know that what the climate models are telling us is realistic. You know, people have questions. Should, should we believe that outcome or is it sensitive to which kind of model we use? And so paleoclimate's role, I think, is sort of a ground truth for these things. So we can, by going back to past warm climates in particular, we can ask, okay, what happened how does it tell us about how the climate responds to high CO2? Let's try and simulate that past climate with our climate model. Can it reproduce that? 
if it can, then maybe we have more confidence in the future projections, right? So um, it, it's, you want to test your model on as many different climates as possible to, to have confidence that it's giving you uh, a projection that, that, you know, that, that you can rely on. So, so I think paleoclimate is a really important benchmark um, for climate models and also just for discovering how the climate system behaves under high CO2. We really don't have any other way of really knowing what happened in, except for going back into time and looking at past examples. It's true that none of, I, I would say that almost none of the paleoclimate examples are exactly like today because generally CO2 doesn't rise as fast as naturally as we're doing, as we're forcing it to do so now. So there's no perfect analog, but there are times of higher CO2 that occurred for other reasons. Obviously, there weren't people burning fossil fuels, but where CO2 was released in the Earth system for some other reason. And they can definitely help us understand what's going on or what might happen. So when CO2 did come up in the past, how like speedy is it in comparison to now? So like, are we twice as fast or 10 times as fast? Is that something you can know from the evidence you have? Yeah, so one of the fastest releases of CO2 that we know about is an event called the Paleocene-Eocene Thermal Maximum. Um, and it happened about 55 million years ago. And it's sort of this burp of CO2 uh, and methane uh, probably as well that came up. Um, there's still debate about where it came from. It's, it, there was a volcanic eruption at the time. Maybe there was a release of methane from methane clathrates. There's all sorts of debate. But what we do know is that it came up really fast. Um, but still that rise, it was about 10,000 years, you know? So that's fast for earth time. It's not so fast for human time. Whereas, you know, we're talking about a rise in 100 years, 150 years. So there's orders of magnitude difference, even in some of the fastest geology events that we know about. It sounds like, if I'm if I'm doing my math correctly, the scale of change that was happening on the scale of like 10,000 years is now happening on the scale of 100 years, which is, we figured this out, it's a factor of a 100 times more quickly. Maybe. It sounds like a lot more quickly. Right? Yeah. A, a lot more quickly. It's a lot more quickly. Yeah. yeah. Um, That's kind of scary. Which isn't great. Yeah. Uh, but we can adapt and will adapt. Yes. We have science on our side. Oh, we have science. See, that's our hopeful note coming out of AGU. Well, okay, then that's all for this episode from our Third Pod from the Sun Centennial Edition. Thanks so much to Liza for bringing us this story. And of course, to Jessica for sharing her work with us. This podcast is also produced with help from Josh Spizer, Olivia Ambrosio, Katie Brundle, and Lauren LaPuma. And thanks to Colin Warren for producing this episode. We would love to hear your thoughts on our podcast. Please rate and review us on iTunes. Listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, always at thirdpodfromthesun.com. Mm -hmm. And as a final note, we are collecting stories. We'd love to hear from you about times when things just didn't go quite right in the field. <laughs> or the lab or whatever. Yeah. Um, we're calling them kind of fieldwork fails, but it doesn't have to be a failure. It can just be when something went awry or a funny, funny story. Um, email us at news at agu.org. Um, tweet at us, whatever. Yeah. And we'll put you on. Yeah, it'll be great. 
Uh, and be on the lookout for more Centennial episodes to come. As well as our regular episodes. And maybe some in between. And so thanks all. And we'll see you next time. 